Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. What I'm going to talk about this evening is a subject which I also talk about in China. I give lectures on this topic at maybe 10 to 12 different Chinese universities. So as you're listening, you might think about if you were, uh, uh, if you were a Chinese student, what you might think of this subject. Huh? Uh, and uh, I, uh, I give courses on this material at different, uh, different Chinese universities. On the handout, there are some texts uh, that I'm going to refer to, and my, you have my email address at the very end. Uh, there's a slight numbering problem. And also, this was the, uh, uh, probably has the January date on it. Right, I was going to come here in January, but I wasn't able to make it. So to, to save a few trees, uh, Alexa decided not to uh, uh, make uh, copies with the new uh, uh, date on it, with a new date on it. The theme of this lecture, I didn't put out, is from Thomas Aquinas's Latin, it's almost English, creatio non est mutatio. Creation is not a change. All right, that's one translation, but we'll see why as we go through. <clears throat> okay, what is a beginning? It's a simple word but difficult to define, in part because it admits of many applications. Beginning is a relative term. It always points to something beyond itself. Thus, to speak of a beginning necessarily includes a reference to something or things that follow from it. Looking back to a beginning already involves some recognition of what has come after. And there are as many beginnings as there are stories we tell about ourselves, our lives, our origins, and ultimately the origin of all things, of the universe itself. Obviously, one thinks here also of the opening words of the Bible in the beginning. We are fascinated by beginnings, and no one more so than St. Augustine, who in his Confessions offers a paradigmatic account of a search through time and memory to the very beginning of his life. The final books of the Confessions contain a systematic reflection on both time and memory. And then Augustine seeks to remember, as it were, the ultimate beginning of all existence by a careful reading and explication of the opening of Genesis. Augustine's search for beginnings is a search to find God as the origin and continuing presence in his own life and to find God as the creator of the entire universe. Augustine indeed locates his own beginning and the story of his life's unfolding in the broader context of the origin of all things. That's why it's important when you read Augustine's Confessions that you don't stop at the end of Book Nine. As, <laughs> Uh, with the, the death of Monica, because what comes next, more difficult, 
systematic discussions of time and memory, and then an elaborate uh, uh, analysis of the opening of Genesis. Uh, and that analysis of the opening of Genesis is an important part of Augustine's thinking about beginnings. Uh, okay, when Aristotle writes about beginnings, he reminds us that a small mistake in the beginning often expands exponentially to produce error after error. This admonition of Aristotle has a special relevance in discussions with respect to cosmological, philosophical, and theological claims about the beginning of the universe, and especially the relationship between claims in cosmology and traditional understandings of the doctrine of creation. An initial error about different senses of what it means to begin is the beginning of all sorts of errors about the relationship between the doctrine of creation and discoveries of contemporary science. Such errors often lead to a further error, to think that advances in cosmology have eliminated the need for a creator. This conclusion that there's no that there is no creator, this conclusion has its beginning in a fundamental error about the various beginnings that the natural sciences, philosophy, and theology address. What can cosmologists tell us about the creation of the universe? An answer to this question requires us to be clear about the explanatory domains of the natural sciences, philosophy, and theology. And in such an enterprise, there's no better guide than Thomas Aquinas. Perhaps it seems strange to argue that what Thomas has to say about creation and science can speak directly to debates in our own day about the philosophical and theological implications of current cosmological speculations. Despite dangers of falling into anachronistic commentary or of failing to recognize profound differences in the ways in which terms such as science, creation, and time have come to be used in the centuries that separate us from Thomas Aquinas, still when it comes to drawing philosophical and theological conclusions about contemporary cosmology, insights from the Middle Ages remain valuable. <clears throat> Recent developments in cosmology have been used to reach philosophical and theological conclusions about the beginning of the universe. In their book, The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mladen now make the point that just as the universe has no edge, so there is no boundary, no beginning to time. Therefore, for them, to ask what happened before the beginning or even at the beginning would be meaningless. And this is quotation number one on your handout from Hawking and Vladimir. <clears throat> In the early universe, when the universe was small enough to be governed by both general relativity and quantum theory, there were effectively four dimensions of space and none of time. That means that when we speak of the beginning of the universe, we are skirting the subtle issue that as we look backward toward the very early universe, time as we know it does not exist. We must accept that our usual ideas of space and time do not apply to the very early universe. 
That is beyond our experience, but not beyond our imagination. Commenting on this claim when interviewed on television several years ago, in fact, almost 12 years ago, Hawking said that nothing caused the Big Bang because there was no time at such a putative beginning. For Hawking, the relationship between cause and effect is essentially a temporal one. A cause always precedes temporally its effect. But his cosmology allows no time in which a creator would exist prior to what he creates. No time, hence no causal nexus, therefore no creator. Now, there are fundament <coughs> fundamental confusions in this analysis of Hawking's in which God's causality, for example, is considered as the same kind of causality that creatures exercise and that the relationship between cause and effect is, for Hawking, necessarily a temporal one. I'll be talking more about this question of a, a temporal relationship between cause and effect. <clears throat> Citing a version of contemporary string theory, Hawking and Mladenow tell us that the creation of a great many universes out of nothing does not require the intervention of some supernatural being or God. Rather, they think these multiple universes arise naturally from physical law. The principal argument they offer is that once we recognize that our universe is but one of an almost infinite number of universes, then we do not need a special explanation, a grand designer, the title of their book. We don't need a special explanation for the very precise initial conditions that account for life and our existence. Recent theories concerning what happened before the Big Bang, as well as those that speak of an endless series of Big Bangs, or some version of a multiverse hypothesis are often attractive because they too deny a fundamental beginning to the universe and thus appear to make a creator irrelevant. There is a desire in some cosmological circles to get rid of the troubling singularity of the Big Bang itself, a singularity that seems to indicate a beginning to the universe. Such theories allow cosmologists like Neil Torak and Paul Steinhardt to claim, quote, that the Big Bang is not the beginning of space and time, but rather an event that is in principle fully describable using physical laws. Nor does the Big Bang happen only once, they claim. Instead, the universe undergoes cycles of evolution, Big Bang after Big Bang. Some cosmologists have used insights from quantum mechanics to offer accounts of the Big Bang itself. They speak of the Big Bang in terms of quantum tunneling from nothing, analogous to the way in which very small particles seem to emerge spontaneously from vacuums in laboratory experiments. Thus, they think that to explain the Big Bang in this way as the fluctuation of a primal vacuum eliminates the need to have a creator and leads to the conclusion that physics itself is competent to explain the very beginning of the universe. One cosmologist, Alexander Valenkin, argues that although the universe has a beginning, 
Modern physics can describe the emergence of the universe as a physical process that does not require a cause. And this is quotation uh, number two from Blanken. What causes the universe to pop out of nothing? No cause is needed. If you have a radioactive atom, it will decay, and quantum mechanics gives the decay probability in a given interval of time, say a minute. There's no reason why the atom decayed at this particular moment and not another. The process is completely random. No cause is needed for the quantum creation of the universe. Voinkin uh, is a proponent of the notion of quantum tunneling from nothing. Right? Now, there are other thinkers who have embraced traditional Big Bang cosmology, which seems to affirm an absolute beginning to the universe as providing scientific justification for, if not actual confirmation of, the Genesis account of creation. Even Pope Pius XII once remarked, this is 1951, that this Big Bang cosmology offered support for what the opening of Genesis revealed. The argument here is that the Big Bang, an initial singularity outside the categories of space and time, points to a supernatural cause of the beginning of the universe. William Wayne Craig, one of the better known proponents of this position, outlines his argument in a simple syllogism. And this is quotation number three on your handout. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. That is, it is created. Now, Craig's argument appears to have an immediate appeal. In addition, however, to referring to contemporary Big Bang cosmology to support the conclusion that the universe is temporally finite, Craig also invokes philosophical arguments about the impossibility of past times being infinite, an impossibility that leads ineluctably to the conclusion that the universe has a beginning. If past time cannot be infinite, it must be finite, therefore there must be a beginning. That's a philosophical argument distinct from the scientific argument based on uh, Big Bang cosmology. The relationship between the temporal finitude of the universe and the conclusion that it is created can be found in the work of the Jesuit theologian and cosmologist Robert Spitzer. In his book, New Proofs for the Existence of God, Contributions of Contemporary Physics and Philosophy, Spitzer claims that modern physics shows us that the past time of the universe is finite, and since the universe has a finite past, it must have begun to be. And if the universe began to be, there must be a cause for this beginning. It must have been created. In fact, Spitzer accepts the argument of Alexander Vilenkin in number two, huh, in the quotation, uh, Vilenkin's argument that the universe has a beginning. But with Craig, Spitzer would reject Vilenkin's denial that there must have been a cause for this beginning. So Vilenkin says, physics shows us that the universe has a beginning, but we don't need to invoke a notion of a cause to explain that. So, as we've seen, there is a debate as to whether or not 
contemporary cosmology discloses a beginning to the universe, as well as a more explicitly philosophical debate about whether a beginning of the universe requires a cause. Physicist Sean Carroll, in his book, The Big Picture, on the origin of life, meaning, and the universe itself, and this is uh, quotation number four on your handout, uh, says that causation, cause and effect, is a, a derived notion rather than a fundamental one, and it's best thought of as acting within individual theories that rely on the concept. Talking about causes, Carroll says, is not the right vocabulary to use when thinking about how the universe works at a deep level. Carroll argues that the first premise in Craig's syllogism, Craig's syllogism that whatever begins to exist has a cause, Carroll thinks the first premise is false. Indeed, Carroll rejects the legitimacy of asking for a cause of the universe as such. Quotation number five. <clears throat> Why should we expect that there are causes or explanations or a reason why in the universe in which we live. It is because the physical world inside of which we are, inside of which we are embedded, has two important features. There are unbreakable patterns, laws of physics, things do not just happen, they obey laws, and there's an arrow of time stretching from the past to the future. <clears throat> The entropy was lower in the past and increases toward the future. Therefore, when you find some event or state of affairs B today, we can all very often trace it back in time to one of a couple, one or a couple of possible predecessor events that we therefore call the cause of that, which leads to B according to the laws of physics. But crucially, both of these features of the universe that allow us to speak the language of causes and effects are completely absent when we talk about the universe as a whole. We do not think that our universe is part of a bigger ensemble that obeys laws. Even if it is part of the multiverse, the multiverse is not part of a bigger ensemble that obeys laws. Therefore, nothing gives us the right to demand some kind of external cause of the universe or the multiverse. Now here, Carroll confuses one kind of causality, that between temporally separated events, with a much richer and broader notion of cause. He thinks that causality follows from the laws of nature, when in fact it is just the opposite. Indeed, laws of nature reflect the causal relations that exist in the world, and thus these laws of nature depend upon the priority of causal relations. And in rejecting the application of his restricted notion of cause, to the question of the cause of the universe, Carroll mistakenly thinks that he shows the falsity of traditional arguments for a cause of existence as such, that is, for an uncaused cause. Now, 
There are many issues here in Carroll's analysis about the nature of causality that we need to leave aside, at least for now. Because I want to return to the specific question of creation and the beginning of the universe. See, in a way, the current debate is about whether or not cosmology discloses a beginning of the universe. Hawking, for example, denies the intelligibility of such a notion of the beginning. And others argue for variations of an eternal universe. William Lane Craig and Robert Spitzer and others claim that cosmology does indeed point to a beginning. The debate framed in such terms about a beginning lead the exponents either to reject or to embrace the idea of creation. You see, despite fundamental differences as to what contemporary cosmology tells us, all these views tend to identify what it means for the universe to be created with the universe's having a temporal beginning. This emphasis on beginnings leads to confusion about creation. The error here is to think that creation necessarily means that the universe has a temporal beginning. Uh, one of my fundamental theses here. The error is to think that creation necessarily, I emphasize that adverb, necessarily means that the universe has a temporal beginning. If creation and beginning are connected in this way, it becomes easy to see how a denial of there being a beginning leads to a denial of creation and that an affirmation of a scientific account of beginning leads to an affirmation of creation. Another reason for thinking that creation must involve a beginning concerns confusions about nothing in the expression creation out of nothing. The tendency is to think that coming to be out of nothing the traditional doctrine of creation out of nothing, the tendency is to think that coming to be out of nothing must refer to a beginning, and that accordingly, different accounts of nothing in contemporary physics can now eliminate the need for a creator. Just as there are confusions about beginning, so too there are confusions about nothing. This will be number seven on your handout. Alexander Vilenkin, who accepts a version of quantum tunneling from nothing as, as a description of the origin of the universe, notes that the nothing in his account is a state with no classical space-time, the realm of unrestrained quantum gravity. It is a rather bizarre state in which all our basic notions of space time, energy, entropy, etc., lose their meaning. Valenkin offers the following thought experiment. Imagine space-time as the surface of a sphere, and then suppose that the sphere is shrinking like a balloon, losing its air. As the radius grows smaller, it eventually goes to zero. The surface of the sphere disappears, and with it, space-time itself. 
We have arrived at nothingness, he says. We have also arrived at a precise definition of nothingness, a closed space-time of zero radius. This is the most complete and utter nothingness that scientific concepts can capture. It is mathematically devoid not only of stuff, but also of location and duration. So there you have it, the scientific definition of nothing. However, the nothing in some cosmological models that speak of the Big Bang in terms of, quant of quantum tunneling from nothing, as Volenkin does, that not is not the nothing referred to in the traditional sense of creation out of nothing. The, no, the nothing in these contemporary cosmological reflections may very well be nothing like our present universe, but it is not the absolute nothing central to what it means to create. This scientific kind of nothing is only that about which the theories say nothing. It has nothing to do with the nothing in creation out of nothing. <clears throat> and we'll see as I continue. <clears throat> Another example about, of confusion about different senses of nothing, in addition to the language, can be seen in Lawrence Krauss's A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. And this is number eight on your handout. Krauss thinks that the question of why there is something rather than nothing is really a scientific question not a religious or philosophical question, because both nothing and something are scientific concepts, and our discoveries over the past 30 years have completely changed what we mean by nothing. <clears throat> Hence, no appeal to a creator is needed. Science is sufficient to explain something's coming from nothing. Offering a striking landscape of ever deeper senses of nothing, Beyond even that of vacuums and empty space, he concludes, and this is the next paragraph uh, in number eight, we have discovered that all signs suggest a universe that could and plausibly did arise from a deeper nothing involving the absence of space itself and which one day may return to nothing via processes that may not only be incomprehensible, but also processes that do not require any external control or direction. Krauss is aware of philosophical and theological objections to any attempt to relate his sense or senses of nothing with the nothing central to the traditional doctrine of creation out of nothing. Nevertheless, he writes, and this is the last paragraph in number eight, Some philosophers and many theologians define and redefine nothing as not being any of the versions of nothing that scientists currently debate. But therein, in my opinion, lies the intellectual bankruptcy of much of theology and some of modern philosophy. For surely, as this is one of the most extraordinary adverbs, surely nothing is every bit as physical as something especially if it is to be defined as the absence of something. It then behooves us to understand precisely the physical nature of both these quantities, something and nothing. And without science, 
Any definition is just words. I gave a lecture on this topic at MIT, and I said, now all of you scientists at MIT, I'm sorry, we're going to get nothing but words from now on, but <clears throat> no equation for you. <clears throat> Despite a widespread interest in nothing, or various levels of nothingness, the nothing to which many authors, especially Lawrence Krauss, refer, is really something, even at times a quasi-ambiguous reality. But the nothing, in the traditional understanding of creation out of nothing, only refers to the absence of everything other than God. In a way, however, to speak of other than God risks the danger of locating God and things on the same metaphysical plane, perhaps different only in degrees. <clears throat> Nor ought we to think that this means that there are two realities, two ultimate principles, God and nothing. Creation out of nothing does not mean that God changes nothing into something. Rather, it is the way of affirming that it is God alone and nothing else who is the cause of absolutely everything that is. <clears throat> Another cosmologist, Lee Smolin, in Three Roads to Quantum Gravity, calls into question the meaningfulness of asking questions about an ultimate origin of the universe and I have a longer quotation here in number nine. I'm going to refer to the parts in bold. Smolin's claim, Smolin's claim is that the universe, quote, cannot have been made by anything that exists outside of it. For by definition, the universe is all there is, and there can be nothing outside of it. Accordingly, the first, the next bold part, the first principle of cosmology must be there is nothing outside the universe. The first principle means that we take the universe to be, by definition, a closed system. It means that the explanation for anything in the universe can involve only other things that also exist in the universe. Now, we need to recognize that there are different senses of first principles. He's talking about the first principle of cosmology here. Some are first with respect to a restricted area of investigation. For example, the first principles of the natural sciences. Others would be first principles in a kind of absolute sense, referring indeed to all categories of explanations. And we'll talk more about this in a minute. <clears throat> so confusions concerning creation and cosmology run the gamut from the denials of creation because the universe is conceived as, of no, as having no beginning, to explanations of beginning in exclusively scientific terms which avoid any appeal to a creator, to opposing claims that the Big Bang itself offers a kind of scientific warrant for belief in God's creation of the universe. All of these theories both in favor and opposed to the idea of creation, share what I have called the error of beginnings. But if creation ought not to be identified necessarily with the beginning of the universe, my claim, what then does creation mean? So now I'm going to talk about the metaphysics of creation and the theme creatio non est mutatio. 
when I talk about this subject in China, I tell my Chinese students that my goal is that, that they memorize this brief little Latin phrase and that they mutter this phrase on the buses and the subways of China so that eventually 1,400,000,000 Chinese, including President Xi, would be able to say, creatio non est mutatio. Creation is not a shame. <clears throat> I don't, I haven't counted to see how successful I am. <laughs> Contrary to all these claims uh, about, uh, claims that use cosmology either to deny or to affirm creation, we need to recognize, and this is number 10, and the material in italics are my words. I put them in italics to distinguish them uh, from the others. <clears throat> Creation is a metaphysical and theological affirmation that all that is, in whatever way or ways it is, depends upon God as cause. The natural sciences, including cosmology, have as their object the world of changing things, from subatomic particles to acorns to galaxies. Whenever there is a change, there must be something that changes. Whether these changes are biological or cosmological, without beginning or end, or temporally finite, they all remain processes. Creation, on the other hand, is the radical causing of the whole existence of whatever exists. Creation is not a change. To cause completely something to exist was what creation is is not to produce a change in something, is not to work on or with some existing material. At the very least, this is the traditional understanding of creation. Now, the second uh, paragraph in number 10 on your handout. Cosmology and all the other natural sciences offer accounts of change. They do not address the metaphysical and theological question of creation. They do not speak to why there is something rather than nothing. It is a mistake to use arguments in the natural sciences to deny creation. But it is also a mistake to appeal to cosmology as a confirmation of creation. <clears throat> Discussions of creation are different from arguments from order and design to a source of order and design. Similarly, discussions about the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe do not directly concern the topic of creation. Thus, whether or not multiverse theories do away with the need to explain such initial fine-tuning, as, for example, Hawking claims, they do not provide fine-tuning arguments, do not provide a commentary on creation. Creation, as we have seen, offers an explanation of why things exist at all. It may very well be that natural philosophy, working with the discoveries of the empirical sciences, can lead us to knowledge of the existence of God. But this would not yet be knowledge of God as creator. For this type of knowledge, God as creator, we need metaphysics and ultimately revelation. <clears throat> what it means for God to create is radically different 
from any kind of human making. When human beings make things, they work with already existing material to produce something new. The human act of creating is not the complete cause of what is produced, but God's creative act is the complete cause of what is produced. This sense of being the complete cause is captured in the expression, out of nothing. To be such a complete cause of all that is requires an infinite power, and no creature, no human being possesses such infinite power. God wills things to be, and thus they are. To say that God is the complete cause of all that is does not negate the role of other causes, which are part of the created natural order. Creatures, both animate and inanimate, are real causes of the array of changes that occur in the world. But God alone is the universal cause of being as such. God's causality is so different from the causality of creatures that there's no competition between the two. That is, we do not need to limit, as it were, God's causality to make room for the causality of creatures. God causes creatures to be causes. God causes human beings to be free. Human beings are the causes of what they choose, and God is the cause of what human beings choose. Not partial causes. We can talk about that. God causes creatures to be the causes that they are. Now, my analysis thus far has been heavily influenced by the thought of Aquinas, but now I should be a little more explicit in my reference to him. Already in the 13th century, the groundwork was set for the fundamental understanding of creation and its relationship to the natural sciences. <clears throat> Working within the context of Aristotelian science and aided by the insights of Muslim and Jewish thinkers, as well as his Christian predecessors, Thomas Aquinas provides an analysis of creation and science which remains true. One of the key texts from Thomas is from his treatise on separated substances. This is uh, uh, number 10, it should be number 11, but it's number 10 on your handout, on the bottom of page three. Thomas writes, over and above the mode of becoming by which something comes to be through change or motion, there must be a mode of becoming or origin of things without any mutation or motion through the influx of being. For Thomas, creation means a dependence in being, which is a notion in metaphysics, not in the natural sciences. To be caused to be by God means to be dependent upon God for the fact that one is. The relationship here between divine cause and created effect is one of metaphysical dependence. Indeed, the fundamental sense of causality involves dependence and not any temporal relationship between prior and posterior. posterior. Notice in the quotation from Unseparated Substances that Thomas distinguishes, quote, the mode of becoming by which something comes to be through change or motion from the more fundamental sense of creation that he identifies as the influx of being. The latter, the influx of being, 
is the causing of existence as such. That little phrase, as such, causing of existence, is important. It helps us to recognize the difference between causing something to come to be or to exist in the ways in which, for example, animals produce offspring. The difference between that kind of causing and the causing of the actuality of whatever is as it is, which is what we mean by God's act of creating. So creation is not primarily some distant event. Rather, it is the ongoing, complete causing of the existence of all that is. At this very moment, were God not causing all that is to exist, there would be nothing at all. Creation concerns, first of all, the origin of the universe, not its temporal beginning. Indeed, it's important to recognize the distinction between origin and beginning. The former origin, the former origin, affirms the complete continuing dependence of all that is on God as cause. Whatever is created has its origin in God. But we ought not to think that to be created must mean that whatever is created has a temporal beginning. Now, it may very well be that the universe had a temporal beginning, as the traditional interpretation of the opening of Genesis acknowledges. But there is no contradiction in the notion of an eternal created universe. For were the universe to be without a beginning, it still would have an origin. It still would be created. This was precisely the position of Thomas Aquinas, who accepted as a matter of faith that the universe had a temporal beginning, but also defended the intelligibility of a universe created and eternal. Unlike his teacher, Albert the Great, or his colleague at the University of Paris, Bonaventure, Thomas did not think that out of nothing, in the phrase creation out of nothing, he did not think that out of nothing had to mean after nothing, such that a created eternal universe was impossible. It was precisely the view of Albert and Bonaventure that out of nothing had to mean after nothing. Therefore, for both Albert and Bonaventure, a created eternal universe was a contradiction, but not for Thomas Aquinas. As we've already seen in Stephen Hawking's denial of God's causing the universe to be because there is no time, hence no temporal priority, hence no causality to be exercised, cause and effect are often seen as necessarily involving a temporal sequence. But Thomas can speak of an eternal universe being caused by God because he does not limit the relationship between cause and effect to a temporal sequence. And of course, he distinguishes between God's causality and that which creatures exercise. God's causality as creator is prior to the created effect, but the priority is not a temporal priority. It is the failure to recognize that to be created does not necessarily entail a temporal beginning that results in considerable confusion in contemporary debates about the implication of cosmo implications of cosmology for arguments about whether or not the universe is, is created. 
this error about beginnings continues to be the beginning of all sorts of errors about what cosmology can properly describe and what creation is. Thomas Aquinas thought that neither science nor philosophy could know whether the universe had a beginning. He did think that, me that metaphysics could show us that the universe is creative. In his first magisterial treatment of creation, he remarked, quote, not only does faith hold that there is creation, but reason also demonstrates creation. Anyone with reason can know the universe is created. But Thomas would have warned against those today who use Big Bang cosmology, for example, to conclude that the universe has a beginning and therefore must be created. He was always alert to reject the use of bad arguments in support of what is believed. And this is quotation 12 on your handout. Thomas writes, that the world began to exist is an object of faith, but not of demonstration or science. And it's useful to consider this, lest anyone presuming to demonstrate what is of faith should bring forward reasons that are not cogent so as to give occasion to unbelievers to laugh, thinking that on such grounds we believe things that are of faith. So he would think that anyone who uses arguments from Big Bang cosmology to show that their creation can be the object of ridicule and laughter. The singularity in Big Bang cosmology may represent the beginning of the universe we observe, but we cannot conclude that it is the absolute beginning, the kind of beginning which would, if it existed, would indicate creation. And indeed, as some cosmologists recognize, there could very well be something before the Big Bang. When it came to how to read the opening of Genesis, Thomas observed that what is essential is the fact of creation, not the manner or mode of the formation of the world. Questions concerning order, design, and chance in nature refer to the manner or mode of formation of the world. Attempts in the natural sciences to explain these facets of nature, order, design, chance, attempts in the sciences do not challenge the fact of creation. A world with a temporal beginning concerns the kind of world God has created. It may very well be easier to accept that a world which has an absolute beginning is a created world. And such a world, a temporal with a beginning, might may be especially appropriate for the understanding of sacred history, important as it is for believers. But an eternal world, one without a beginning in time, would be no less a created world than a world with a beginning. This is now number 13 on your handout. That's an indication I'm getting near the end. Cosmological theories are easily used, or rather misused, to support or deny creation. Each time, however, as I've suggested, to create has been joined inextricably to temporal finitude, such that <clears throat> to be created necessarily means to begin to be. Thus, to deny a beginning is to deny creation. It was the genius of Thomas Aquinas to distinguish between creation understood philosophically with no reference to temporality and creation understood theologically, which included the recognition that the universe does have an absolute temporal beginning. 
The philosophical sense of creation means that God, with no material cause, makes all things to exist as beings that are radically different from himself and yet completely dependent upon his causality. This philosophical sense of creation has two essential elements. One, <clears throat> there is no material cause in creation, no stuff whatsoever out of which God makes the world. And two, the creature is completely dependent throughout its entire duration upon the constant causality of the creator. This philosophical sense of creation is the sense in which creation out of nothing is a subject in metaphysics <clears throat> concerning the complete dependence of all that is on a cause of existence. There is, finally, a wider confusion at work here as well. Wider than the confusion of creation about beginnings. It is the failure to distinguish between creation and the changes which occur within the created order. And the failure hence to recognize that the natural sciences, including cosmology, have nothing whatsoever to tell us about the ultimate cause of the existence of things. God's creative power <clears throat> is exercised throughout the entire course of cosmic history in whatever ways that history has unfolded. No explanation of cosmological or biological change, no matter how radically random or contingent such an explanation claims to be, challenges the metaphysical account of creation that is of the dependence of the existence of all things upon God as cause. When some thinkers deny creation on the basis of theories in the natural sciences or use cosmology to confirm creation or reject the conclusions of science in defense of creation, they, all, they misunderstand creation or the natural sciences or both. All this same analysis can be applied to the debate about creation and evolution. I've on about that. Experiments being performed at the Large Hadron Collider, the huge underground particle accelerator on the Swiss-French border. They may bring us closer to what happened just after the Big Bang, but they will tell us nothing about creation. The distance between minute fractions of a second after the Big Bang and creation is, in a sense, infinite. We do not get closer to creation by getting closer to the Big Bang. Furthermore, as we've seen, <clears throat> some contemporary cosmologists argue that there could very well be something before the Big Bang. Similarly, excitement about the recent discovery of gravitational waves referred to as ripples in the fabric of space-time has encouraged some, like the cosmologist Neil Turok, to, to speculate that we may soon be able, quote, to see what happened at the moment the universe began. But for whatever beginning these gravitational waves might provide evidence, it's not the kind of absolute beginning which would be central to the doctrine of creation, a beginning or origin that, as we have seen, is first of all separate from any notion of time. We need to avoid the error of thinking that discussions in the natural sciences about beginnings have anything at all to tell us about the creation of the universe. Thank you very much. All right, we have time for some questions. Did God create time? Yes. In the beginning? Yes. 
It depends on what you mean. No, uh, light. Light. No, uh, well, whether it's the first, it's not clear what the first thing created would be. But when we say God, time, the re time is a reality. As a reality, it's caused to be what it is by God, else it would not be at all. Whatever time is, you know, Augustine's famous comment, I know very well what time is until somebody asks me, huh? Whatever time is, it is created by God. Huh? Okay, so what will you say time is if somebody asks you? <laughs> the measure of motion in terms of before and after. That's Aristotle's definition of time. We would have to distinguish between some contemporary discussions of time in mathematical physics and time as, and space-time as the dimension for Einstein and others. But if we take a kind of, I might say, an ordinary sense of time in terms of a passage, a process in terms of before and after, an experience of before and after, that's good enough to start with. But you see, you see Hawking and Mondo, whom I, who I quoted at the beginning, they think that time emerges in the universe. That first there is, so to speak, first there is the universe. Huh? Thomas Aquinas would say that, well, look, to talk about the beginning of time before which there was no time, <laughs> all the, see, that's only a sense, we, that word before, before, before there was time, the word before there is a matter of our imagination. Just as like outside the universe, Thomas said it's outside, beyond only in our imagination, but not in some sort of uh, uh, existing reality. John Paul II used the phrase, eternity entered into time. And I think that, that we see that in the mass. Well, we would want to distinguish between the phrase eternity or the adjective eternal as predicated of God and the adjective eternal as predicated of a universe without a beginning. There are different senses of eternity. In fact, every concept we predicate of God, infinite, uh, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, are all predicated in a very special way and requires a lot of reflection as to what it means. So an eternal God doesn't mean the same thing, the eternal in the phrase eternal God doesn't mean the same thing in an, in an eternal, of, of an eternal universe. An eternal universe is a universe of succession without a beginning or without an end in its succession. Yes, please. Um, I find the idea of, of the eternal universe very interesting because I think I've, I've always thought of like after, uh, I'm trying to map this biblically a little bit in thinking of you know, Revelation and saying that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that if, you know, there's a theory that says that there were things before the Big Bang and there have been a series of Big Bangs or something to that effect, that if there's another one to come, that is the new creation. No. A would like your, your, your thought on that. Well, this becomes a theological. My Chinese students, I was careful to tell them that's a theological question, not a philosophical question. And I'll look at the ceiling and say, look, 
the people in Beijing who are listening in, please be aware that my arguments here are philosophical, not theological. But I, like any normal student, they want to ask these kinds of theological questions. The, um, the uh, topic uh, of a beginning uh, is crucial in for a theological account of creation. Why? Well, first of all, it's a matter of, in the history of the church, it's a Catholic church, it's a matter of revelation. In 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council gives the first dogmatic definition of creation. It's quite interesting that it's not until 1215 that we have a dogmatic statement about what creation is, which includes the notion of there being a beginning. And well, it's not that it wasn't thought of before, but the traditional Catholic and Christian interpretation of Genesis is that Genesis reveals that, there, that the universe has a temporal beginning. It's temporally finite. Why should that be important? Uh, well, first of all, what sense do we make of that? Uh, as I've suggested in my talk for Thomas, it's easier to accept a notion of creation if you also affirm that the universe is temporally finite. And you see that in Craig and Spitz and so on. But more importantly, a beginning means that there's a sacred history. Without a beginning, there is no history. So a, a, a universe with a beginning is a universe which has a sacred history, in which things occur in the fullness of time. And so forth. So, but that's all a kind of theological understanding of why a temporally finite universe is appropriate, is fitting. But it doesn't mean that therefore the only way one could have a created universe is one with a temporal beginning. We begin to well, what sense do we make of what is revealed about the universe about the universe in Genesis. Well, we see it in terms of the sacred history. Uh, Thomas was a great student of Aristotle and incorporated a good deal of Aristotle's works in his, uh, in his own philosophy and theology. Aristotle thought it was demonstrably true that the universe is eternal. Aristotle offers arguments for the eternity of motion and the eternity of time there cannot be a first moment of time. Why? Because what is the now of time? The now, the moment, is that which connects what comes before, which, which, comes, which comes after. So the very intelligibility of time for Aristotle requires that it never begin. The very intelligibility of motion all motion comes from a previous motion, comes from a previous motion. And therefore, there is no absolutely first motion. Now, there is an unmoved mover for Aristotle. But for Aristotle, the unmoved mover is one who is simultaneous with every motion. So there cannot be a first motion. There cannot be a first instant of time. These, these were arguments in Aristotelian natural philosophy, which Thomas had to deal with. It is interesting that when Thomas comes to comment on Aristotle's physics, the last, in the later part of his life, in 1269 or so, he had always thought 
that Aristotle would not have claimed that he demonstrated that the world is eternal. And this was a common view of Maimonides and others, that Aristotle couldn't have made this mistake. Because we all know Maimonides, Thomas, based upon revelation, the universe is the beginning. Aristotle couldn't be contradicting us. So, what Aristotle, so when, he, when Thomas begins systematically to read the physics about why there cannot be a first motion or a first instant of time, he stops and he corrects Aristotle. But he says, Aristotle's error is to affirm the eternity of the world, not to deny creation. In fact, Ar Thomas thinks that Aristotle has a metaphysical demonstration for creation. But the error of Aristotle concerns temporal finitude and eternity, not creation, according to Aquinas. But there are more things to the, th the theology of creation. First of all, it's understood in Trinitarian terms. So the interrelationship among the persons of the Trinity is reflected in the outgoing of the creator water. Huh? So the creation is an act of the Trinity. Huh? And so just as the internal dynamism of the persons of the Trinity uh, is a feature of God, so there is a kind of dynamism reflected in the outgoing of the causes of existence. Huh? So Thomas has a, I mean, it, it, the theological notion of creation is much more than just the question of temporal finitude. But temporal, finitude, temporal finitude is one of the questions. Please. In Edward Bailey's book, The Five Proofs of the Existence of God, he makes a similar distinction to the one you do between the two different notions of cause. The one metaphysical, there is a hierarchical chain mm -hmm. here, and the other temporal. You outlined very well the sort of the shape first kind of cause, the metaphysical one. Mm -hmm. what, what would be like the contents of that, of that shape? So what would a causal process look like in the sense that... Well, the question is, I'm a little bit troubled, uh, intellectually, huh? the fundamental, what happens in the history, there's a wonderful, uh, the wonderful way to look at this is to study the history of notions of causality uh, and how Modern thinkers, and Fazer would be a good example of someone who's pointed this out as well, modern thinkers have inherited the notions of cause found especially in David Hume and others, in which cause and effect are seen simply as the, what, what we recognize as a temporal sequence. First, we see first this, then this, and we see that in a kind of regular way, and we call it cause and effect. Huh? But Hume affirms the notion that the fundamental sense of cause and effect is one of sequence, connectivity. Huh? That's a category in epistemology, a category in the way in which we know things. The more for Aquinas, for Aristotle, and for many other thinkers in the ancient medieval world, cause and effect reflect a dependence in order of being an effect. Cause and effect are relative terms, not absolute terms. They refer in each case to a relationship. An effect is only properly an effect 
as it's being caused to be an effect. A cause is only properly a cause as it is producing an effect. So cause and effect are not two separate things. They are rather two features of the same reality, of a causal nexus. Uh, uh, so uh, we ought, in, in which one, the effect is only an effect as it is dependent upon, the, as it is being dependent upon a cause. Now we use word cause, cause and effect are used in many different senses. I'm trying to suggest the root sense which underlies all these senses. So for Aristotle, we'll talk about a material cause, a formal cause, a final cause, an efficient cause. And then there will be secondary causes and intermediate causes and uh, potential causes and actual causes. And surely, uh, temporal, uh, temporal sequence is a feature of some causal relations. But it's not the root sense of what makes a cause a cause, or, or, what, or what, a, what, what, what causal relations involve. They involve a, metaph a metaphysical dependence in being the effect as an effect, as it bees an effect, depends upon a source of its being an effect. And that's the root sense of causal connection. So the proper understanding, philosophically, yeah, the proper understanding of cause and effect is ultimately given in metaphysics. Now, ultimately, but not initially. Initially, we experience it in the world of physical changes. Huh? So cause and effect is first of all discovered in our world of changing physical things. And then as we reflect more and more about the nature of things, we move into the realm of metaphysics and we expand our notion of cause and effect to the being the cause of being as such, that quotation from, uh, from Thomas on separated substances, over and above the mode of becoming by which things come to be through motion of change, there must be, notice, there must be, that's a claim of a demonstration. And he offers a demonstration in many places. There must be a mode of becoming not through any motion of change or change, but through the influx of being. <laughs> I've often, in China, it's wonderful, my Chinese, well, not just in China. What does that mean, the influx of being? That's not a concept in the natural sciences. That's a concept in metaphysics. Now, if you say that there's no such thing as metaphysics, or it's only word games, well, we have to argue about that. But then, uh, <clears throat> I'll give you one other example on this. The biggest objection, and my Chinese students love this when I give objections to my position. They're not used to it. They used to have it just the position. Uh, said, look, the fundamental objection to my position is to say that existence doesn't need a cause. Things just are, period. What we have to explain are all the changes. But the very existence as such needs no explanation. It's, to use the philosophical jargon, it's a brute fact. Uh, and of course, that would, be, that would be, if that were true, that would eliminate all this analysis. 
So what would we have to do? We have to say, well, to say that existence is a brute fact is not to think profoundly enough about what it means for things to exist. And it is interesting that the, what we translate Or what Thomas uses in Latin, um, writing this. Actus ascendi. Ascendi from being. Right? The act of being. Being is an actuality, an activity. It's not a static something. It's actus ascendi. And therefore, we, once we begin to understand the notion of existence as actus ascending, you can begin to see how it is that Thomas argues that there must be a cause of this activity. The activity doesn't just happen, it needs a cause. So to say that existence is just a brute fact is not to understand the deeper sense of what it means for things to be. Being is an activity, an actuality. It's not a static this. But this requires some significant discussion in metaphysics, which requires, first of all, recognition that there's metaphysics, and then a discovery of what the first principles of metaphysics are, and so forth, and all that is involved. And if you think that only the, that the natural sciences are the ultimate explanators of reality, well, then you're denying this whole mode of analysis. But there's a way to respond to it. Or at least you can see uh, that whether you think Thomas Aquinas' understanding of creation in metaphysics, whether you see it makes sense or not, you can at least see that it doesn't challenge the claims of the natural sciences, nor does the natural sciences challenge its claims. So that this whole approach to creation, you might think, well, it's just fundamentally mistaken because there's no such things as metaphysics. But it's okay because it doesn't bother me in the natural sciences. So that we don't have any contradiction between this notion of creation and the conclusions of the natural sciences. That doesn't mean that either one is, would be true. That would be a different argument. But at least you can see there's no contradiction. I remember the first time I talked about this in China in 2013 at Fudan University in Shanghai. It's one of the top 10 universities in China. I gave three lectures. The first one was about the debate about the eternity of the world in the Middle Ages, because it was a big debate, and Thomas was the minority position. See, <laughs> Thomas's position on this question was not the prevailing position in the 13th century. It was a minor view, and it was a minority view. And I quoted that passage, not only does faith hold that there's creation, but reason also demonstrates it. And I stopped, I said, you know, that statement is true not only in 13th century Paris, but right here in 21st century Shanghai. 
And I noticed the students smile. The professors looked a bit apoplectic about this. But that's a look. We can examine this, this doctrine, but this is a radical, it's one of the most radical sentences in the history of Western philosophy. Radical in the 13th century, radical today. Not only does faith hold that there's creation, reason also demonstrates creation. Creation now philosophically not connected to temporality. Did someone else have a question? I'll give one more. A, bit, a little visual thing. Here in the vertical dimension, whether there's a beginning or the end, would be the realm of change. Of all the changes, big and small, biological, all the changes that occur, which we ex which is the subject of the natural science. Creation is the vertical dimension, the constant causing of everything that's going on in the horizontal. Huh? A constant causing. Well, God not right now causing everything, including the taste in your mouth, whatever, everything, nothing would be. But you can see how, and the dilemma then comes, and Thomas is great at this, how can God be the complete cause and there also be this realm of real causes uh, because of the kind of causality which God, that God is exercising? All these changes, different kinds of things. Earthworms do things, subatomic particles do things, we do things. All these changes differ. God differs differently. God differs differently. God is not one more. God isn't the super changer. God is not the superior. God isn't in the category of creatures. Huh? This requires an analysis of God's transcendence. Okay, well, I'm sorry. Go on. Okay. On that high note. Uh, <laughs> The high was good for trends. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.